Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavalero Studio South. Welcome to the Monday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call, the best edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call, where we're talking Long Island nightlife, national news, and international issues for winter intercession 2022. I'm your producer, Danny DeGrasenzo, joined by Emily Campbell and Alexa Servo. Today, we'll be discussing the Olympic Games, which states Americans are leaving in droves, and a pretty wholesome social media challenge. Alexa and Emily, it's our first show together. It's a very frigid Monday morning here in Hempstead. How are you guys holding up this early in the morning? It is so cold outside. My fingers were going to freeze off on my way just from the car to the door to get in. Yeah, I'm no morning person, but I made it here in the cold, and it's definitely a chilly one out there, so stay warm. Yeah, most definitely. I'm good thing I can drive here because I used to walk to do the morning wake-up call from, I live in a dorm all the way on the other side of campus, so before I got my car on campus, it was just the most frigid and and terrible 10-minute walk of my entire life in the freezing cold, so I do not recommend Good thing I can drive in the heated car or else, I don't know, what I'd show up with hypothermia. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's kind of good, I guess. I don't have to walk from a dorm at all. I get to drive right from home. Heated seats, heated car. Oh, heated seats. Heated steering wheel. It works out perfect for me. Very jealous. No heated seats in my car yet. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, man. Uh, My mom has heated seats in her car, so that's how I get my fix. But we have so much to talk about today, and we're going to have to start with some terrible news because last night... Bob Saget died, guys. 65 years old, found unresponsive in a hotel room in Orlando, and he was America's dad. He was Danny Tanner. I grew up watching Full House reruns on Nick at Night, and just, man, this hits. This this hits really hard, you know? Yeah, it's definitely really upsetting, and it's kind of one of those things that you definitely don't believe at first. Like, you know, I found out last night, I think it was my aunt or my mom who said it, that he had passed away it's like one of those things where you're like no he didn't that that's not real that definitely didn't happen but you know what sometimes you just have to face the facts I guess if everyone's reporting on it I guess you're like well maybe it's maybe it's true you know it's too bad to be true exactly I mean we were sitting around the dinner table and I didn't really watch Full House but you know my mom saw it on the news she mentioned it and later that night I was talking to my friends and I go guys did you hear Bob Saget died and my friend went yeah, I heard. Did that really happen? <laughs> oh, yeah. It reminds me of what happened when Kobe died because I was actually playing basketball. My brother goes, Kobe's dead. I go, no, he's not. Just stop messing with me. He goes, no, he died in a helicopter crash. And I go, are you kidding me? And then obviously it just spiraled into this, oh my gosh, it actually happened. Well, Bob Saget, I was just watching a movie last night and I see 10 texts on my phone and my family who are all big Full House fans go, uh, Bob Saget's dead. I go, what? <laughs> it. Sometimes you just can't believe they're gone. But we'll be talking about a legend who passed, but their legacy lives on later in the show. But we have our first story here, a big international story. It's about the Olympics. And Emily, I'll let you take the reins on this one. Sure. So I have a story, and it's focused around whether or not China is ready to host the Winter Olympics. So with the promised start date of the 2022 Winter Olympics approaching, Many are unsure whether China is ready to host. Chinese officials have promised that the 2022 Winter Olympics, which are held February 4th through the 20th, will be a, quote, 
safe, streamlined, and splendid global event. However, China has been struggling with the zero COVID policy following a record-breaking surge due to the Omicron variant. With less than four weeks to go, questions have risen around many topics, including the aforementioned variant, media access during the Olympics, and a diplomatic boycott from Western countries. Yeah, that's uh, the Olympics are pretty a pretty big deal, you know, in the in the world of inter- international relations and in sports. And I have pretty strong feelings on if China is ready. But Alexa, what do you think about this? I don't know. I feel like um, right now, I really don't think anywhere is suitable enough to be hosting the Olympics, just because the Omicron variant is so strong, and it's definitely something like. It feels like the start of quarantine again, you know, like that original quarantine where everyone was getting COVID. And this time it's like, you you know, at the beginning it was like, oh, well, I've heard a lot of people have it, but I don't really know anyone that has it. And now it's like, we know everyone that has it. You you can't, you know, walk into a building and not hear somebody say, oh, well, my friend has it or my family member has it. So I feel like putting that large amount of people in that space could be a little nerve-wracking for some people. Yeah, I think COVID is probably the number one thing, but that COVID zero policy that China's been pushing for a long time since the whole start, it's not going to hold, I don't think it's going to hold up because the thing is China's already bending over backwards to make these games happen. 49 million gallons of water for fake snow. They're reusing venues from 2008 and the strain on the Chinese economy is just intense right now and i don't think china really wants to talk about how much money this is going to cost and you just look at the political end of it they're doing it for a political means because president xi jinping is trying to get rule for life this year so if he has a bad showing at the olympics there's no way that the chinese communist congress is going to say all right here you go you're going to rule for the rest of your life nice job screwing up the olympics man i think that's something not a lot not enough people are talking about and that goes into the boycotts that are going on. And Emily, you have researched those Western countries' boycotts, right? Yes, I have done a little bit of research on them. So as of now, the United States, Canada, Australia, Britain, and a few others are not going to be sending government representatives to the games following the suppression of China minorities. So the boycott doesn't include the athletes, so it won't really derail the games. Beijing has reported that they couldn't care less whether they send officials or not, though, even though so many Western countries have stated their opposition. Yeah, and there's also not a lot of athletes going. I know hockey isn't sending pros because it's going on right during the NHL season. And that sort of was the debate that was happening during the Summer Olympics in Tokyo with the with the basketball players because we weren't sure, you know, this is during the season now. Do we send our pros overseas in the Olympics during COVID? It's just a tough thing to do because you have so much, the world is so polarized and we have a great uh, uh, professional on the line to talk about how the world is polarized in a second. But the the Chinese are, as you said, they don't care about what's going on with the Western countries, but it's something that you look at and you say a lot of people don't really even feel super enthusiastic about the games even happening in a diplomatic space. And I think that's something that speaks volumes to how these games are going to be perceived as opposed to maybe say 2008 where things were, it was a far different time in 2008, if you recall. Yeah, 100%. And I think uh, the thing with the sending athletes there, not to go back to COVID, but even still like 
the thing with sending too many athletes there, it could lead to another outbreak there. And they're saying that the athletes are going to be tested daily, which seems like a good way to keep them healthy and like under control. But what about the spectators that are going to watch the games? So uh, I was doing a little bit of research myself, and I did see that they're only letting the people from mainland China uh, go to spectate. So they're not allowing any people from outside countries, outside areas, no one else is going to be allowed in to see it. But even still, with that restriction, how are they going to keep, uh, you know, the spread of COVID under control? Yeah, it makes you think about how much, as I mentioned before, how much of a strain this is going to be on the Chinese economy and whatnot. And additionally, you mentioned that it's all people from in China that can only see the games, you know, it raises a question about what about media? And Emily, I know you have a little bit to say about the media with these games, too. Yeah, media is probably one of the biggest things because China has this quote unquote great firewall, which limits access to things like Google and Twitter and YouTube. So a lot of journalists have been questioning whether or not they're going to have the access to actually cover these games or even the Internet access. Chinese officials had said they would be free to cover the games. However, the International Organizing Committee promised that in 2008, and the journalists did face similar restrictions. They couldn't really get to the internet like they were promised. Yeah, so in even if in the best of times, because I think 2008 was way better than the world we live in today, just based on, you know, there's no virus going around. If in the best of times there's restrictions with the media, what do you expect now, especially with this great firewall and more advanced ways of censorship online? That brings us to the question, guys, the million-dollar question. Are these games worth it? Are these games worth happening right now? But for the rest of the world, maybe not for the Chinese government, for the rest of the good of the international athletic community, are these games worth it? What do you guys think? I'm going to say... I don't think so this year. I mean, the Olympics are something, they're not what they used to be. It used to be amateur athletes coming from countries around the world, a big diplomatic celebration of the entire world. And now we're sending professional athletes. Politicians don't want to go anymore because of the status of the country. And especially COVID right now, this giant spike, I just don't think they're worth it this year. I also think maybe... Uh, I mean, as much as the Olympics are a great way to bring people together, and I think I think it is an important event, but maybe at this time, not so much. Like, I think if they were to just postpone it until next year, I know it kind of changes the pattern a little bit. They do every four years, but still, if, if there's just so much going against the Olympics, it just makes the most sense to push it back a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you guys are right. Things should be pushed back, kind of like Tokyo. And the Olympics aren't what they were in the past. I remember just playing Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games on my Wii all the time as a kid and just thinking, wow, the Olympics are so cool. Like, what's this javelin thing you throw? What's this discus thing? I had no idea what anything was as a kid, but I'm like, these are so fun. I want to watch this in real life. But now look at the world. You can't, you can't even really watch it because it's just, it's boring. You know all the things that are, are an, an asterisk next to the games these days. There's no good, clean fun like Mario and Sonic just duking it out on the Nintendo Wii, you know? <laughs> that, that's a bygone era. That was a good game. I loved it. Me and my siblings used to play it all the time. Mine too. Yeah, that, 
Mario Kart. I mean, the the three game lineup was Mario Galaxy for yourself, and then Mario Kart for your friends, and then Mario and Sonic Olympic games for a lot of your friends at once. That was just <laughs> try beating that three game lineup on the Nintendo Wii. You can't because it's just perfect. I was playing the Olympic game, uh, like the Sonic one, before I even knew what the Olympics were. Yeah, my my little brother had me playing those all the time. Yeah, and then the Winter Olympics were pretty. They did they did the Winter Olympic Games in 2012 in Sochi. That was fun. I was like, not, not 2012, 2014. I was like, yeah, this is cool. Like, man, they're just gonna keep making these forever. Like, but I don't see Mario and Sonic at Beijing 2022. You know, that's how you know. That would make things a lot more fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah <laughs> but the fact that that doesn't exist, that's how you know the world's going downhill. There's no Mario and Sonic Olympic game this time. It's 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 terrible. It's a travesty. We should protest. <laughs> Just for Mario? And Sonic. And Sonic, Yeah, of give us both. Give us <laughs> Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. We, because they're just, they're international icons. They're symbols of diplomacy. Ch- uh, Japan announced they were doing the Olympic Games by their prime minister jumping out of a Mario pipe. Remember that in 2016? I, that long ago? Yes, that long ago. I was in eighth grade in 2016. Wow. That's, that's how. so weird. <laughs> that, that was almost s- six years ago. Time flies. Yeah, it's so weird. I feel like 2016 is one of those years everybody looks at and they're like, yeah, that was a that good was, year. And, then and Haram- it was just so long ago. And then Harambe died and we all know the rest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's downhill from there. All downhill from here. And speaking of downhill, this is a weird transition, but we're going to go for it. International relations between... Another country in the United States have been deteriorating for a long, long time. We're talking about Russia. And to talk about this divide over Ukraine specifically, it's proven a massive diplomatic flashpoint. Joining us on the air now to discuss this is Kimberly Martin, a political science professor at Barnard, as well as an author and scholar specializing in foreign policy, environmental politics, and Russia. Professor Martin, you're on the air. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Thank you, Danny. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you, too. So our first question for you is just establishing a little bit of context. How did we get here between the United States and Russia? Well, it's been going on for, you know, 30 years, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union and what we thought at the time was the end of the Cold War. Um, What's been happening recently is that uh, during the uh, early Putin era in the early 2000s, Uh, Russia was able to sell a lot of oil and natural gas internationally, which brought in the money that they needed to rebuild their military. And then the confrontations have been happening um, basically since the uh, Russian uh, invasion of Georgia back in uh, 2008. Then we had the uh, Russian takeover of Crimea uh, uh, more recently in 2014. Um, And now we have 100,000 Russian troops poised on uh, three different sides of the Ukrainian border, uh, both in Russia and in Belarus. Uh, And so it's it's a dangerous situation, and it's been building for a while. So what are the concerns the U.S. and the allies have had the most about Russia's actions regarding Ukraine? Well, you know, it's it's very clear that Russia has not wanted, and when I say Russia, I'm really talking about the administration of, of, of Vladimir Putin. It's not clear how widely these views are shared by the Russian public. Um, but it's clear for a while that Putin has really wanted to have more influence in Ukraine. He has wanted to 
take back uh, the kind of role in that uh, geographical space that Russia had during Soviet times. Um, he has expressed uh, that the, the, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest tragedies of geopolitical history. So the concern is that he really wants to take back control over Ukraine and that he'll figure out a way to do it one way or the other. Um, and so in recent years, we've seen, in addition to the takeover of Crimea, uh, a lot of terrible fighting in eastern Ukraine that has killed, I think at this point, uh, several thousand people. We've seen uh, Russian um, attacks on the electrical grid uh, in Ukraine uh, using cyber methods. Uh, there have been other kinds of cyber attacks in Ukraine. Um, and so all of these things are coming together as, as threats. And then, of course, right now the situation is that Russia has put forward these demands that are being talked about uh, in a series of meetings this week, uh, both with the U.S. directly and then with NATO and with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe later in the week. So on New Year's Eve, Biden and Putin spoke at Putin's request. Uh, what is your view on the impact of that discussion relative to the one happening today? Well, I mean, I think this is all sort of building in a particular direction. It's been made very clear that what has been talked about so far is not really negotiation, um, but more a dialogue of hearing each other out. And so I think the best results that could come out of the series of talks this week um, would potentially be the establishment of a formal negotiation procedure. And uh, a couple of things that people think there could be productive negotiations about would be limiting the deployment of long-range missiles in Europe, both by Russia um, and by uh, NATO members and also by Ukraine. Ukraine has an independent defense industry left over from Soviet times. And within the next couple of years, Ukraine may be able to deploy its own long range missiles that could hit, you know, uh, the Russian heartland, essentially. So that might be one area where you could have some, um, you know, potentially um, useful negotiations in the future. And another would be going back to the kinds of limits on uh, military exercises that had been in place earlier in the 1990s, where both sides were notifying each other about military exercises, um, just to make sure that nobody felt threatened by the movement of troops uh, and that they didn't come as a surprise. So in those two areas, maybe we could have some forward movement. But what Putin has said he wants, which is limits on NATO's future enlargement um, and NATO no longer to provide weapons in countries that were once part of the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact, those are non-starters and they're not going to get anywhere. And in the media, a lot of people have been comparing these discussions between NATO and Russia as very similar to what was going on in the Cold War. How fair of an assessment do you feel those those two distinct diplomatic eras are to each other in this in this modern diplomatic problem. Well, that's a really interesting point. Um, certainly during the Cold War, even at the times of very large struggle, like during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was always some way of the two sides talking with each other. I would say that one difference is that now it's just much more open and much more easy for the two sides to meet. So we're not quite at the point that we were at the height of the Cold War. But I think another difference is that the negotiations or the discussions that are happening now really are focused on Europe. Only um, And during the Cold War era, they were much more global in scope. And the difference was that during the Cold War, there were no other major powers besides the Soviet Union and the United States because of the, the really bipolar split in the world between the communist camp and the capitalist democracy camp. 
Um, and these days, of course, there's China. And so any negotiations that are happening between um, the U.S. and Russia or NATO and Russia, they're going to be limited to the European space because China isn't a player in these talks and China has no desire to become a player uh, in these discussions. And our last question for you today is how likely do you think Putin is to heed the warnings of the international community to de-escalate? You know, that's a really interesting question, and I, I, I don't think it has a lot actually depending on what happens in the talks this week. I think that Putin is going to make his calculations about whether he wants to have military conflict in Ukraine um, based on his calculations about the uh, sanctions that will be put on him if he chooses to do that, um, based on the fact that um, there's, there's a lot of evidence that the West will supply uh, Ukraine with more weapons and perhaps with more advisory assistance to launch various insurgencies against Russia if Russia invades. Um, if Russia does decide to take military action, I think a lot of experts believe it's less likely to be a huge, um, typical, old-fashioned military uh, ground intervention, and much more likely maybe to be selected airstrikes by missiles against um, particular Ukrainian facilities, or maybe even just putting more Russian weapons um, in the Donbass, where the fighting is happening in eastern Ukraine, maybe to include Russian missile systems. All certainly things to watch. Again, that was Kimberly Martin, political science professor of Barnard, as well as an author and scholar specializing in foreign policy, environmental politics, and Russia to talk about U.S.-Russia relations over Ukraine. Professor Martin, thank you so much again for joining us this morning. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. All righty then. That was an interview that is very relevant today because, of course, as she mentioned, the United States and Russia are having their summit in Geneva today to dis- to discuss these issues before the U.S. meets with NATO. Pretty high-level talks. But let's look at things, let's look at something else for now. Let's look at something going on only in the United States. And this is about people moving, moving patterns. What? Where are people going? And the United Van Lines Moving Survey, which tracks the migration patterns of Americans, has released some pretty devastating numbers if you live in a Democrat-run state. People are leaving, and they're leaving in droves. In my home state of New Jersey, the great garden state, 70% of all moves are departures. Illinois, 67% is a state. New York State, 63%. They're in third. Want to hear this, guys? Nassau, Suffolk County, right here on Long Island, saw an 80% outbound rate led the nation right here isn't that nuts the northeast as a whole was a net 60 percent outbound the state of california on the west coast 59 percent liberal vermont is the exception to the rule 74 percent are inbound that leads the nation but the next four states in the order of inbound saw the biggest rates the ones that saw the biggest inbound rates were all run by republicans south dakota South Carolina, West Virginia, and Florida, all north of 60%. This was something that I, it caught my eye just yesterday, actually, I was reading about this survey and I was thinking, you know, why are people doing this? Why are people migrating? And it says in the survey's press kit, you know, what do these places have in common? All very high urban populations, think New York City, Trenton, Chicago, they have higher taxes, California, New Jersey, New York, are one, three, and seven in income tax rate, but not crime, because crime, you would think it'd be a major issue, but it's really not. If you look at the most 50 dangerous cities, New York doesn't even crack the top 50. 
just such a dense population. That's what keeps it in the public consciousness with regards to crime. And people are saying instead, and when they say, why did you leave? They say, oh, a third say family. Another third say work, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. That's a 30% drop off from what it was in 2015. That was seven years ago, if you can believe it. A massive 45% of all exiters were making 150K more per year. So this was a plurality rich person thing. You had to be in the upper class. But I have my own theory, and I want to know if you, what you guys think of this. So Bill Bishop, author, social commentator, a lot of what he said, Bill Clinton kind of stole what he said in speeches. It was kind of funny to see Bill Clinton almost plagiarize what Bill Bishop said. Big Sort, he wrote a book in 2000s, early 2000s, where he argued that people tend to move to ideologically homogeneous communities. And think about our country now. Our country is way more polarized in 2022 than it was in 2024 when the book was published, when he presented his data. And I don't think our people are going to necessarily say politics all the time, but it's more of a subconscious thing. Like you think about it, you want to be around people who kind of share your values, share your views. You don't want to move to a place where you're going to be hunted down like like a like piranhas going after a minnow, right? So I know I just did a whole spiel, but I wanted to make sure we had accurate context to discuss this very interesting trend. So whoever wants to take it, what do you guys think about these numbers? So I definitely think it, it makes sense that people are moving to almost follow like their beliefs. I think if you ask someone why are they why they're moving, it's extremely doubtful that they're going to say the reason they're leaving is politics or like a political view. But I understand why people would want to live in an environment where other people live like they do, whether it is that political standpoint or maybe it's, you know, religious views or or their moving maybe based on their wealth and their job. They want to move to a wealthier community if they make more money like it, that whole concept, it makes sense to me, um, you know, and even if it, if it wasn't politics, if you were to say to me that people are moving because of religious beliefs, they want to be with people who believe in the same thing as them, that would, that would just make sense to me. I think that trend kind of just explains itself, you know? So as you just said, Alexa, I absolutely do agree with you. People do want to be where they are aligned politically with their community. However, I don't think that's the only factor, especially with the pandemic. Some people have been moving closer to families or many who lived in cities who were told they had to stay home to quarantine wanted to get out to find more space. So they were trying to move into more suburban areas, which those, all the areas mentioned with the highest exoduses, they're all urban areas, so everyone was trying to move out to where they could get more space, especially during the pandemic when everyone was staying home. There was also to do with that people were being told they could work remotely anywhere with Internet access. So everyone was going somewhere more suitable since they didn't have to be in a city going into a building anymore. Reminds me of that song from Little Shop of Horrors, Somewhere Green, where they talk about moving away to this nice little natural paradise, right? <laughs> I love that musical, but that's neither here nor there. I think you guys are definitely onto something because you think about the stresses of the pandemic, especially in high density areas. You just, it was, it was tough. You remember New York city getting slammed in 2020 and now it's getting slammed again. And you just, you, you think people, a lot of people have had enough. They want to get out of there and they want to be closer to their families. And you think about where retirees are moving. That's kind of the, 
the foreshadowing there because people who are older tend to move to warmer southern areas. I mean, Florida is the biggest example, but it's not the only one. There are plenty of other areas down south where retirees like to move. So you think about that trend. Younger people are going to follow that because if they want to be closer to their older relatives, that's where they're going to go. And I think, I think the big sort angle is more of a side effect where by moving closer to your family, right, people more likely to share your opinions on things. Not always, but sometimes. That's something where it can sort of happen on its own. And I do think it's interesting that a lot of people who are moving are relatively financially stable, 150K per year, 45%. Do you think that says something significant or you think that's just a byproduct of, oh, people have the money to uproot and leave? Um, I feel like it depends on the way you look at it. You know, some people may have earned that money and said, you know what, I don't, I don't need to keep doing this. I want to live more of a low key life and they might move somewhere where they have more space and there's not as many people. Or, you know, maybe some people are like, well, I'm making this money and I can work from home. So, you know, why not? You know, I think it depends on the person. I think it depends on the situation. I really feel like the wealth is just a byproduct. It's the fact that they have the money, that they have the ability to move. Every day people say they want to move somewhere warmer just because it's so cold <laughs> as we're talking about here in New York. But not everyone has the money to just do that. So I do think it's just having the ability has made them go to other states. Yeah. And you mentioned, and again, they are trying to leave high tax rate states, California, New York, New Jersey. New Jersey's election almost swung to the challenger, Jack really because of taxes. That was the only thing you really talked about. And it's a message that a lot of people are resonant to. People are sensitive to high taxes these days, especially with the job market being so in flux. We saw the great resignation in 2021. People want to pay lower taxes. People want to go to places where they pay little to no taxes. I remember we, my friends and I always would joke that we'd be 10 times richer if we grew up in Louisiana than New Jersey because of the way of just how le much less money would be taken out of our paychecks when we worked busing tables or whatever. So it's something that people, I think that's a, a strong factor as well. I just, I don't know, as someone who just loves New Jersey, I can never picture someone leaving. I don't know if you feel that way about New York for you guys. It's just, it's home, you know? Yeah. I mean, I totally get that. I think the whole aspect of like family, like wanting to be closer to family, especially now that makes sense. If you have an older relative, you could be worried about them with COVID. You want to keep track of them, make sure they're okay. But even, you know, regardless, I think being in the city, like people who were quarantined in the city, and you know, they always say you go into the city, into New York City, you pay for a really small apartment, but you get big city life. And I can imagine getting tired of that after a while. If you're locked in your apartment for three months because everyone's locked down because of some pandemic that's ripping through your city. I wouldn't want to stare at the same four walls, you know, <laughs> like, like at least, you know, for me, I had my car, I was learning how to drive at the time. Um, so I would go out with my dad or my mom and he, they would help me drive or I would go for bike rides with my brother. And it was nice because there's not a lot of people outside on the streets of Long Island. You know, if you go into the city, you walk out your door, there's going to be tons of people. And at that time, nobody really wanted to be around each other. So I could see just maybe they got fed up with that kind of city life. And they were like, I need to get out of here. And they decided to move. 
I'm in the same boat as you, Danny. I mean, I could never picture myself leaving New York. It's home to me. So with all my family here, it's not really an issue of moving to where family is. So I don't have to worry about that. I mean, they talk about moving every day to get away from the taxes <laughs> and the cold. But this is just home to me. I don't see anywhere else that I could be happy yet. What's that line? If you're in, if you live in New York, you're inherently unhappy. Is that like <laughs> is that a line? I think it's from a movie. But I mean, I am not a city person. I don't like the city at all because I like I grew up in the suburbs. I like my little small town where I can drive to school, drive home, drive to the beach. I live in a house and a cul-de-sac. I can just go outside, play basketball, you know, ride ride on my bike or whatever. I I just like a small area like that. I can never picture living in a city. So I kind of get where these people are coming from and what you were saying, Alexa, just want, wanting to, you know, break free, you know, go to, go to more of a suburban area. Cause my dad works in the city, but he obviously commutes. And I think that situation works pretty well. I mean, I, when I was a little kid, we lived on Staten Island, but then we moved to New Jersey and I live right on, and I, I love living right on the beach. It's just great. You know, it's awesome. Even in the winter, you go to the beach during the winter and it's just like a nice little, ASMR experience. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> no, I get it. And I definitely think like going to the city, you have to do it in doses, you know, like I don't think I could live there. And if I did live there, say in the future, I get a job in the city and I have to live there. I would probably be home every couple days just to see my family. You know, it's not far. Take the train home. It's no big deal to me, but I don't know. I, I see what you're saying. I feel like the city has to come in doses. And if you're going to live in the city, you have to live in more of, of like a low-key part, which doesn't really exist because it's New York City. So, you know. See, maybe because I've only experienced it in doses, it was always like a big thing if we took a trip to the city. It's where I want to be. I love being there. It's the activity, the constant moving. I like that fast pace. So with Long Island so close, New York City... It's not that big of a deal. You can always just come right out to the island, but right, that's so what I love. We have two city and doses people, and we have one city person on the show. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> but really quick, have you guys seen Tick, Tick, Boom? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I saw it, too. Isn't I it amazing? I love that movie. That is yeah. city life as a movie. It is so good. And yeah. Andrew Garfield killed it. Yeah. It was such a good movie. That's Even though it's depicted as like a grimy, it's a little grungy, this life on the edge all the time. That was something that it was so beautiful to watch. And I really loved that city life. Yeah, oh, it was a it was a work of art. I, I just love everything Lin Manuel Miranda does. I mean, that was just that might that even might trump Hamilton for me. I don't know, but it's close. The music is just so good. Not as many songs, but all the songs are just they get you. Yeah, you know? it was good. And the movie just it just does a good job of like depicting city life, especially when Jonathan Larson was alive and. I don't know. I, I loved that movie. That was a good movie. Yeah, such a good watch. I'm glad my friend Brendan recommended it to me. It was just, man. Oh, my 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 brother likes Andrew Garfield for Spider-Man. But I'm like, you got to watch him in something else because he's pretty good in other movies too, man. He's not just Peter <laughs> Parker. But moving on from uh, the city life. In fact, I'm glad I mentioned Hamilton because we are going to talk about a little history here. It's January 10th. I don't know how much you guys know about ancient Roman history. I know when I, whenever I bring it up to my family and my mom always like, ah, well, you're such a nerd. Um, <laughs> so t almost 2,000 years ago today, January 10th, 49 BC, that was a long time ago, guys. I mean, what a time to be alive. Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River. What does this mean? 
what happened? Well, we all know Julius Caesar, right? Well, he crossed this river into Italy, and it just caused the Roman Civil War because you're not allowed to bring troops into Italy. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that more because I spoke with Callan Shea, historian and social media influencer, to get the gist about this historical event that not enough people talk about and why it should be more well-known, especially in today's political climate. Are you guys excited for this interview, 10 minutes long? (laughs) 100%. All right, here we go. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo from the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call here with Callan Shea, a social media influencer and historian. The air date of this interview, January 10th, marks the anniversary of Julius Caesar famously crossing the Rubicon River in 49 BC, and that's what the two of us will be discussing today. Callan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. So I think we'd better start with what was going on? What was the context before Caesar crossed the Rubicon? Caesar had had some political troubles. So he gets a governorship in Gaul, where he conquers and builds up a large power base. Um, But back in Rome, his political alliance, the Triumvirate, um, is starting to fall apart because uh, there was three members, Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. Crassus was the richest and I think the eldest, um, but he went off to the Middle East and ends up dying on a campaign there that was very ill thought through. So this leaves just an alliance of Pompey and Caesar, who are extremely similar men. Um, They are both talented military generals and skilled popular politicians. And um, they sort of see with Crassus out of the picture, it's These are not two individuals who liked to share power. Um, So Julius Caesar is making his way back to Rome with his legions before this, um, because Pompey has tried to take over Rome for himself. Caesar's at the Rubicon River, which marks the border between what was Cisalpine Gaul and Italy, the provinces. What was the crossing of the Rubicon? Walk us through what was going through Caesar's mind. And of course, the famous line, let the die be cast, the die is cast, that we've all heard a million times. Oh, JC, such a dramatist. (laughs) Very underappreciated about him. Basically, there's a Roman law of imperium. And that basically means you do not bring an armed legion into Rome proper at the time, which was, yeah, central Italy. Um, (laughs) And this is because Rome is a republic. They only have forces against outer, supposedly, they have lots of force, but um, there's no violence supposed to happen in Rome. And the rule is this, the Rubicon River, it connects to the Adriatic Sea to a mount, from a mountain range to the Adriatic Sea. And it's really the, because of the mountains, it's the best way to head south in Italy. And the rule is that the Rubicon River is where you do not bring an army past. And so Julius Caesar knows 
when he takes arm, his armed legions past the Rubicon, he is breaking a sacred Roman law, like the equivalent to like disregarding the constitution in the United States. He knows that this will, he will have to win this fight that's about to go down or he will lose, but he's about to embark. And so he says, let the die be cast. And with the die firmly cast, why is the event so significant in the grand scope of history, not just in Roman history and history in general? Mm, that's a great question. Why does this moment seize our imagination in the Western, in the Western world? I think it's because Julius Caesar was very much a man of the people and very much trapped in a time that's being dictated by rules from the past. By the time this is happening, Julius, the empire has grown immensely, um, but they're still using this, the rules as if they are a small republic. They need transformative change. That is incredibly difficult to achieve throughout history. And Julius, so rarely do we see one person try to take it on in the way that you see Julius Caesar try to take on a whole empire when he crosses the Rubicon. Yeah, and by crossing that river and starting and eventually winning that civil war, it basically marked the end of the Roman Republic. And why should people learn about that? Why should people learn about the transition bet between the Roman Republic, the Republican era, and then the empire founded by Augustus, his grandnephew. What's so tragic about Julius Caesar? And I think a lot of the people who came later, who sort of are similar to him in other ways, is um, the grand visionary uh, and the person usually for the people, like Julius Caesar, like, say, a Lenin. Yet they don't get to see they achieve power and they build this power and they have it all and then they die and someone else grasps it from them and rarely is a person who didn't actually put in the work to organize power when they seize it they're not as kind to the people and that shift away from as you said rule-based republicanism why is that relevant in today's world, especially in America, when you, where you see this term that people are saying democratic backsliding, the erosion of democratic norms? Why do you feel it's important to always keep in mind the crossing of the Rubicon as a stark image of that in the ancient world as compared to the modern world? You can learn a lot about our modern situations, especially from Rome in the United States today. I mean, we have a Senate. <laughs> we have a Senate. And then, I mean, one of the major causes of Julius Caesar feeling like he had to do this, I don't think this would have been his ideal way to become, you know, so powerful in Rome. The Senate had become so ineffective and concerned with their own rights and privileges that they were so disconnected from the empire that things things became so inefficient and so stagnated that it gives the opportunity for populace to rise up. Julius Caesar is 
very much to a T a populist. He had published every year of his Gallic campaigns, his famous works, the Gallic Wars. Um, he was a master of propaganda and he was violent. And he saw anyone who wasn't a Roman uh, wasn't, wasn't a good situation. So, hmm, there is a, but I do think, uh, that's where it does get hard because I think Julius Caesar was extremely necessary and probably right in a lot of ways, you know, and it's also so hard because he died. And so his son, Augustus, or his adopted son, um, takes the reins. This is a boy who is raised in privilege, you know, um, just didn't have to fight for his life the way that Julius Caesar did growing up. What is one dominant lesson? You, you tied what connects the modern world to what happened in 49 BC. What is the, just the main lesson? And you mentioned how Caesar was necessary, but now democratic backsliding is seen as a bad thing in modern democracies. What's the lesson, if there is one? If government does not keep up with technological and societal innovation, it causes extreme problems in societies. With Julius Caesar, he understood that. That's, you know, let the die be cast. This is not, you can't control it. You can take your chances and see what happens. Yeah, and he took quite the chance, and it worked out somewhat before he was stabbed many times by his friends, <laughs> his supposed friends. Just before we wrap up, thank you so much for discussing the Rubicon with me. How can our listeners find your stuff online? How can our listeners connect with you and see what you've been up to? Absolutely. Um, check me out on TikTok. I'm at History Callen or on Instagram at Callen Shea. Um, C-A-L-L-A-N-S-H-E-A. -L -L -E yeah, check me out. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a blast. All right, thank you. And that was Callan Shea, social media and influencer and historian. We talked about the crossing of the Rubicon River on its anniversary. Thank you again, Callan. It was so fun. Bye. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. And we are back, done talking about history for the day. Happy anniversary, the crossing of the Rubicon, but we will end with a pretty nice, heartwarming story after dealing with so much, so many heavy topics. There's another Back to the Future reference for you. Oh, Doc, that's heavy. Um, <laughs> this is heavy, man. It's not you, Marty. It's your kids. Um, we have the Betty White Challenge. What is the Betty White Challenge? And to explain the Betty White Challenge, Alexa will explain it for us. So, yeah. So when I was looking for some stories to discuss, I stumbled upon the Betty White Challenge, which instantly caught my eye because obviously everyone knows the late great actress Betty White. Um, specifically for her iconic roles and her comedic work on TV shows like The Mary Tyler Moore Show and, more famously, in my opinion anyway, The Golden Girls. But what a lot of people didn't realize is that she was also an avid animal lover. She devoted countless hours to saving endangered species and fixing the conditions at the L.A. Zoo. But, you know, unfortunately, as we all know, she passed away on December 31st, three weeks short of her 100th birthday. So I'm... I might butcher this last name. Matt Bershidker? I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I'm not entirely sure. I think you got it. He's president of the nonprofit ASPCA, which is dedicated to preventing animal abuse. He expressed his sadness over her death and started the Betty White Challenge on Twitter, 
asking fans to donate $5 in Betty's name to local rescues and animal shelters on January 17th, which would have been her 100th birthday. I think our next show is on January 17th. Oh, yeah, it it's is, a Monday. actually. Well, yeah, we can it's a honor, today. We can honor Betty White that day as well. But I think unlike some other online challenges, <clears throat> Tidepot, <clears throat> um, <laughs> this is a great, wonderful thing to do and a great way to honor Betty White and help animals in need. And social media needs more of this. I love this. CEO of American Humane, uh, I didn't type his name for some reason, geez, told GMA that the organization – has seen a drastic increase in donations already. It's not even January 17th. And it shows just how much good people can do online when they work together. And people can unite under noble causes like this. It just sucks that it's too few and far between. And it doesn't help that the channels of communication aren't really trusted because recent surveys that I'm sure you guys have heard about, three out of every four people don't trust decisions that social media companies make. So when you take the power out of the social media company, put it in the people to do something like this, just make simple donations for a, a good heartwarming cause, you get good results. And I couldn't be happier this is happening. I will certainly participate on January 17th. Yeah, I think it's like a like a great way to actually live out her legacy. Um, like the article that I found actually put a quote from Betty in it that she had said to Entertainment Tonight where she said, quote, children grow up to be people, so I just like animals better than people. <laughs> it's that simple. Like, honestly, I think it's so funny because that's how she justified her work with animals. Like, she worked with the LA, LA Zoo specifically for five decades, and she also offered a lot of support to the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, and they actually named the entrance to the Heart of Africa exhibit Betty White Way. So I just think, I think it's like a, a really great way. I mean, even though she explains it as she likes animals better than people, which I mean, I get it. But I think it's funny that just that's how she wanted people to see her, you know? Like, as you said earlier, Danny, when I heard Betty White, Betty White challenge, I didn't know what it was yet. <laughs> and my first reaction was panic. I was wondering what people could possibly do now to get themselves hurt or in trouble. So the fact that it's donating money to rescues and shelters is really an important thing. My family especially supports rescue animals. Our one dog, he's a rescue. So we know that donations to rescues and shelters like that go directly towards housing and food and medical care for the animals, which most animals will need medical care when they come into a rescue. So it's really important that people are doing this as a way to honor her because giving the rescues these resources really gives them the capacity to care for the animals and rehabilitate them when they're too young or brought in in a poor condition. Yeah, I think you mentioned it right on the head because people don't understand how long, how much of a long way a little donation like $5 goes. And of course, you can donate more. I mean, I guess that's more of the challenge. Although I do think Betty White Challenge is a bit of a misnomer because it's not necessarily a challenge. It's more of an an honor, a memorial, so to speak. But whatever the name is, the $5 does go a long way if enough people put in for it. You know, every small amount counts. And this is one of those things where we're going to see it count a lot because her legacy is far-reaching. Her death was widely mourned by so many people across all walks of life because her impact spanned many, many years, as Alexa mentioned. And it's... I, I can't think of another dis, another descriptor for this whole affair than heartwarming because it is heartwarming. It, it just checks all the boxes 
in that when you get that warm fuzzy feeling when you think about it like oh like this is really this is going to be good you know things are going to be all right you know, hurt people are going to really take this to heart and that is what sticks out to me the most about this yeah and i feel like you know like we said before with with bob saget her death was one of those deaths that you're like, no, that didn't happen. Like Betty White, she's 99. She's never going to die. She's going to live forever. You know, like she's just one of those people that you you don't see it happening. And I think doing the Betty White challenge or at least just promoting it and getting it out there, it's a great way to honor her and show people like she was more than, you know, her comedy skits and her television shows. And honestly, I mean, Everybody knows that. It's not surprising to me that she loved animals and she did as much work with animals as she did. But I didn't know until recently that that's something that she did. I feel like like the news only really talked about her acting or her comedy or, you know, to be frank, like how old she was. Like, oh, my <laughs> gosh, Betty White, she's she's 99. So I think putting that emphasis on the work she did outside of her career and and, you know, showing people. She loved animals. This is what she liked to do outside of, you know, acting on screen or it's it's a great way to honor her. Yeah, it really is something so heartwarming. I mean, not to put it in such simple terms, but the woman, her memory of such a great woman in comedy and these donations, put it super simply, your donation for this woman, a puppy could get a home. Look at that. Yeah. It, it reminds me of a lot of what YouTubers were doing with the Save the Seas initiative, the fundraiser, where they donated to, you know, to ocean rescue and environmental protections for the oceans. And a lot of people made their videos fundraisers for a time during the end of the year. I don't think they reached their goal. I think their goal was $6 million and they got $4 million. I'm Don't quote me on that, but $4 million is a lot of money. I think this challenge could certainly see its fair share of money from all of Betty White's devoted fans who want to support a good cause. I wonder what the Bob Saget challenge would be. (laughs) Just thinking about it. I mean, I think we need to start replacing our terrible online challenges like the the coronavirus challenge, the crate crate walk challenge. Is that what it was called? The milk crate challenge. The milk crate challenge. challenge. That was bad, but that That, was funny. Bad but funny, but we need to start phasing. We need to start retiring those because the world is t- is too messed up of a place for people to get hurt over silly stuff like that. Like we need challenges that honor great initiatives or great people, or you know, take a part of their legacy and enhance it for ne- future generations. Because now Betty White will be remembered as someone who cared deeply for animals because of social media. I think that's a good thing. If you asked me three weeks ago, oh. What did Betty White do for animals? I would have no answer for it. I wouldn't know just because I, would, I had no idea. But now I do. And that's something that is a net positive yeah, from this exactly. challenge. It spreads awareness. Yeah, 100%. Like I said before, I don't think the fact that she was an animal lover was really portrayed much. And, you know, I know, I think it said in, I want to say 2011, maybe, she wrote a book about her love for animals, and I never even heard about it. I read it in the article that I was reading about, you know, the Betty White challenge, and I didn't know. So I just think this is a good way to get it out there. Absolutely. I agree with you guys 100%. This is such a completely positive thing. Yeah, it is. It really is. Although I do regret when I typed 
Betty White challenge, I also got a lot of results that were all the terrible challenges that have been in the past. Well, I wish I could. There's just been so many of them that they're going to come up. Like it, I don't even want to share some of them. I, I, I can't even speak about some of them on air like because I'll get sick. I feel about like them. typing the word challenge into a search engine is it's just. It's a challenge. <laughs> the challenge search challenge. challenge. Ugh. It, it just opens too many, too many dangerous possibilities. Yeah, too like, many can of, cans of worms. Basically, yeah. This is not a can of worms. This is a can of nice, adorable puppies that will <laughs> get homes. Puppies. <laughs> not a can. It's a giant. It's a shelter of puppies who will get homes. Yes, and there I think go. I think this is definitely, definitely a way better challenge than the ones that are out there. I agree. I think that's very. I think that's abundantly clear. <laughs> but that is gonna do it for our first show, guys. It's been fun this morning. A great hour of history and international politics and animal donations and Bob Saget and people moving. <laughs> what you you guys having fun? You guys had a good time? Yeah, for sure. I think it was great. Definitely a good first show. Emily and Alexa's first morning wave call. The first of many. Because they they were great. It was awesome having our first show together. But that is going to do it, folks. That is going to do it for this edition of Hoffer's Morning Wave Call. Thank you, Emily and Alexa. And from your producer, Danny DiCrescenzo, I'm signing off. Morning Wave Call will be back tomorrow with Ryan Pagano's Tuesday show with Dexter Schmavonian and Eddie Fitz. And in the words of Drizzy, make sure the young money ship is never sinking. Morning Wake Up Call will be back tomorrow morning.